So we are, as Nathan said, in this series about taking God's word out of context and how many of our quote-unquote favorite scriptures we often misuse. And the danger in that, this isn't just trivia. This isn't just me being a smart aleck. This is important because God's word is the ultimate truth, real truth. And when we twist it, when we distort it, number one, we can slip into error. We can, we can lean into some beliefs that are absolutely against what God's word says. As I said in the first sermon in the series, some of the worst things that have ever been done in the name of humanity have been justified by misusing scripture. Everything from genocide to, uh, to acts of atrocity and war uh, to people justifying their own affairs and cheating on their spouses. I mean, all kinds of things have been, you've used scripture to, to misuse it to, uh, to justify what you were doing. Every cult you can name, not every one, but so many in our country come because of a misunderstanding of God's word. And even when we don't do that, the, the two scriptures we're going to look at today, Nathan shared one of them with you. The other one uh, we're going to talk about in just a moment. Both of them, uh, when you misuse those, when people misuse those scriptures, they're not necessarily speaking heresy, but they are missing out on what the word actually says. They're missing out on an important message that God has for every one of us. So as, as he said, Jeremiah 29, 11, we're getting a two for one today because I'm talking about two. Jeremiah 29, 11 is the first that we're gonna talk about. Some of you know this one. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. If you've ever gone to a graduation service at a church or a graduation ceremony at a Christian school, if you ever graduated from high school or college in the last 20 or 30 years and got a card in the mail from your Christian aunt or friend, they probably wrote this passage on there. And so we look at that and we think, okay, this is about God has a great future plan for you. Now, is that true? Well, yeah, I believe God has a plan for every person alive because he made you in his image. And according to Ephesians 2.10, which by the way, I think that's the one you should put in your graduation cards. Ephesians 2.10 says all of us are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared ahead of time for us to do. That's true, but that's not what Jeremiah 29.11 is about, as I'll show you in just a moment. The other scripture we're looking at is Revelation 3.20. Revelation 3.20 says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And that's a verse that I grew up hearing from a young age because in my church, as with so many uh, Baptist churches and evangelical churches of that time, the emphasis was on winning the lost. And so you had to learn certain scriptures you could use as a path. I remember one of the methods I learned was called the Roman road, where verses from Romans that help people understand how to become Christians. This was one of those verses, not in the Roman road, but in one of the other plans that I learned that you would say to someone who wasn't a Christian, listen, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. He wants to come in and be Lord of your life and save your soul. Now, is that true? Absolutely. There's not a person alive today that Jesus didn't give his life to redeem. There's not a person alive today or has ever been alive who if they called Jesus and said, be my savior, he would say no. No, he would be there in a moment. He would come in and save your soul. But that's not what Revelation 3.20 is about. Growing up in a little Baptist church uh, about three hours from here, uh, we had a, a painting in our church of Jesus standing at a door and knocking. And even at a, as a little boy, I knew that was a reference to this verse. And now that I look back on it, it's ironic that that was hanging in our church, as I hope I'll be able to show you in just a moment. So the thing that these two verses have in common 
is that they're both from letters written by God to specific groups of God's people, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. One group that was uh, exiles in a strange land and felt like God had abandoned them. Another group that was very self-righteous and thought they had it all made. But both of them are from letters from God to his people. Now, some years ago, I read about a woman in New York who uh, her husband was away fighting in Europe in World War II. He wrote her a letter to, to fill her in on how he was doing, and he mailed it. It made it across the Atlantic. It made it to New York City. It made it to the post office, but somehow it slipped behind a desk and was lost. And so, Go forward 50, 50 plus years into the, the late 1990s. And finally, someone decided to replace that desk. And when they pulled it out, they found that letter all yellow and dusty. But they could read the address on the outside. And they said, let's see if this woman's still alive. If she still lives in New York, let's see if we can find her. And give them full credit. They, they went the extra mile. They found this woman and they gave her the letter. Now, her husband had come home from the war and they had enjoyed a long and happy marriage and then he had passed away some years before. And so imagine this woman getting this letter from her husband written 50 plus years before, a husband she hasn't seen in a while. And you know what she did? She threw that letter away. I'm joking, she didn't. Uh, she, she immediately tore it open and, and read it because wouldn't you, wouldn't you wanna know what someone had written to you all those years before? Now, even more so, you should want to know if God writes you a letter and God says, here's my word to you right now. Here's what I see in your life. Here's what's ahead for you. Here's what I'm trying to do in your life right now to get you ready for what lies ahead. Would you want to read that letter or would you throw it away? I think I can answer for every one of you, no matter what your status in Christ is, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you'd want to know if God wrote a letter just to you. And that's what these two letters are. So we need to talk about the context. Remember, if you, if you wanna know God's word, you can't just cherry pick verses. You can't just read a devotional with a verse here and a verse there. You need to know, number one, what do the verses around that verse say? What is, what is the whole chapter about? You need to ask, who was it written to and what were they going through? And you need to ask, what does the whole Bible say? Is anything that I am interpreting this verse as saying contradictory to what the Bible says? So let's look at the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29 is part of a letter written to Jewish people in exile. As we shared last week, God's people throughout the Old Testament went through this cycle where they would drift away from God. They'd pay the consequences of life without God. And in the midst of those consequences, they'd call on God and God would come back to them and say, I'll bring you back. I'll bring you home. I'll make things right. And it went that way back and forth over and over again until finally they had drifted so far. They drifted far enough that they literally lost their country. The promised land, the land God promised to Abraham and all his descendants after him, they lost it. Babylonian Empire, the strongest superpower in the world at that time, invaded Judah and conquered Jerusalem, demolished the walls of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple of God, burned it to the ground, killed many, uh, uh, many of the Israelites and carried most of the rest off into captivity. So just imagine, you're a Jew, you think you're, you're gonna be in this land for generation after generation until the Messiah comes and instead... You find yourself living in a foreign country where they speak a language you don't understand and they worship gods you don't believe in and they embrace practices and customs that are so morally reprehensible to you that hundreds of years later in the book of Revelation, when, when the author of Revelation, John, is trying to just figure out a, a metaphor for the evils of this world, he calls it Babylon. 
and you live in this country, and what are you gonna do? You've been carried here against your will. Well, there were two different schools of thought among the Jews. On the one hand, there was a group that said, hey, God has abandoned us, we're on our own, so let's just do what we have to do to survive. Let's become good Babylonians, let's embrace their gods, let's learn their language, let's, let's follow their customs because this is our new home. And on the other hand, there was a side that said, we can't do that. We're the people of God. Let's resist. These Babylonians are evil. They invaded against the Lord's will. We have to fight back. We have to hold on to what we have. And by the way, there are these prophets around us who are telling us, we're not going to be here long anyway. This is going to be like the Exodus was hundreds of years before. God's going to come back just like he did in the days of Moses and punish our enemies and send us home. And so Jeremiah, who was one of the, this handful of Jews who wasn't taken, he, he and they were still living in the land under a puppet government. He writes this letter to the Jews in exile. And don't you know that when they heard that they'd gotten a letter from a prophet of the Lord, they were both, both sides were eager to hear what it said. Which one of us is right? And so in Jeremiah 29, verse four, he writes and says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now, the people who were on the isolation side who said, let's resist, they didn't like hearing this because it sounds like he's saying, make your home here. But he's not done. He says in verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's a great verse for us today as we live in a country that's becoming increasingly hostile towards the things that we believe, where you and I feel more and more like aliens and strangers in a land that used to seem like ours. What is God's instruction to us? Seek the welfare of the city in which you live. First of all, he says, I have sent you into exile. So we can't look at our neighbors and say, okay, it's your fault things are the way they are. The Jews at that time, they couldn't look at the Babylonians and say, you are evil for destroying Jerusalem. No, they recognize God did this. God used the Babylonians to take us away from our country so we would finally wake up and come back to him. It's our fault. Of course, if they would have been listening to Jeremiah and the other prophets of that time, they would have known that because they'd been warning for decades and decades, this is going to happen if you don't turn. And now they see. But now in the midst of this, these evil people around them, God says, no, love them. Be good neighbors. Prosper your city. When it says, seek the welfare of the city, that word welfare, your Bible may say peace. It's the word shalom. If you have any friends who are Jewish, that's a greeting. You may have noticed they say to one another, shalom, brother. Well, that's not just sort of like hello or have a good day. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And it means something different than our English word peace means. We hear peace and we think an end to a war or uh, peace and quiet. We say, I, I just need, man, could you turn down that music? Can you, can you kids go play behind closed doors? I need some peace. That's not what this word means. The Hebrew word shalom means when everything is fit right again. When the, when the innocent go free and the guilty are punished, when the impoverished have enough to eat and the wealthy become generous, when, when everyone is the way they ought to be, when, when things are the way it's supposed to be. In other words, when you say to someone, shalom, brother, what you're saying is, may you prosper in every way. May God's blessings be upon you. 
so that you live the life that everybody else wants to live. And Jeremiah is saying, you should seek that for your city. The people of Babylon should fall on their knees and thank me that you're here because you've made their nation better. Again, that's not what the group that wanted to isolate and resist wanted to hear. But that's God's instructions to us when we live in a culture that doesn't believe like we do. In verse 8, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. What prophets is he talking about? The prophets who said, you're going home. The prophets who said, you're only going to be here for a little while. This is going to be a new exodus. And now he's about to get even more specific. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Good grief, 70 years? The people hearing this letter had to have just groaned inside. That means I'm never going to see my home again. Maybe, maybe my children will be alive to see it, but back then the, the, the lifespan wasn't that long. Most of the people hearing this would never see Israel again. But what was God saying? God was saying, you may not live to see it, but your people will. You see, let me, let me share with you why this is important. In those days, when an empire like Babylon conquered a nation, they would take everyone in the land and deport them to their nation. Why? Because they wanted to wipe out their culture. Because they knew, you live here long enough and you'll start to be like us. You'll forget your Jews and you'll become one of us. And then we won't have this problem of all these diverse peoples. We'll just have Babylonians. You ever wondered, I say this all the time, have you ever wondered why you don't know any Philistines or, or any Hittites or any Phoenicians today? It's because that happened to them somewhere along. Some bigger nation came and gobbled them up. Didn't kill them all, just assimilated them. And that's what they wanted to happen to Israel. And you know what God says in Jeremiah 29, 11? This won't happen to you. I've got a plan for you. Your people will inhabit the land again. The, the temple will be rebuilt. You won't live to see it, but it's gonna happen. I've got plans for you. And then he goes on in verse 12 and says, or verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's where he's saying, your people will inhabit the land again. Verse 12, he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So here's where God says, yeah, but you people who want to fit in, you're not right either. Because I don't want you to become Babylonians. I want you to love them. I want you to bless them. But I want you to remember that you're still my people. I want you to still be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I want you to stand out so that when your children and your children's children return to the land, they'll still believe in me. They'll still practice the, the rituals that I commanded in the book of Exodus and in Leviticus. Uh, they'll still follow me. I want you to stand out, not fit in. So, so again, this is not a verse about God's got a great plan for your life. That's not what this verse is about. If you want that verse, go to Ephesians 2.10, and there are many others. This verse is a verse that says, no matter how bad you mess up, no matter how far you wander, God doesn't give up on his children. 
He will always bring you home. All you got to do is ask. And that brings us to Revelation 3. Bill, do we have a, do we have a slide for that one? Excellent, good. Uh, Revelation 3 is part of a letter from Jesus to a church in modern-day Turkey. A lot of people don't realize this. The book of Revelation isn't just a book about the end of the world. In fact, the first three chapters, we see John the Apostle, an old man by this time. He's in exile on the, on the island of Patmos because he's been, re, he's been sent there for preaching the gospel. And he meets Jesus again. He sees Jesus for the first time in decades. Jesus comes to him in glorified form. And Jesus says, John, I want you to dictate a letter to these seven churches. And so each of these seven churches gets this letter. Can you imagine being in the church in Laodicea and hearing, hey, our pastor got a letter from Jesus this week. No, really, the Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who died for us and rose again. He wrote a letter to us. And I just imagine that all the guys who ordinarily would be like, you know, it's a nice day. I think I'll go fishing. And all the people who were like, I've had a rough week at work. I think I'll sleep in. They were there. They were there with bells on because they wanted to hear, what does Jesus have to say to us? So imagine the pastor getting up at, that, at the appointed point in the service. And instead of presenting a sermon, he unrolls this scroll that everyone knows the words on that scroll are words from Jesus to us. And here's what he says to them. Revelation 3.14 says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Yes, he says, I want to vomit. That's what Jesus is saying. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let, the, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Do you see the irony of the fact that my church, my home church had a painting of Jesus knocking on a door, hanging in the building? Because this verse is not written to lost people. It's written to a church. It's Jesus saying, okay, I hear you in there. You're singing your songs, you're praying your prayers, you're doing your rituals, you're giving your offerings, preaching your sermons. You're just not including me. Would you let me in, please? Can you imagine First Baptist Conroe, Sunday morning, we're doing the worship thing. We're doing it with all we've got, with every bit of gifting, with every bit of resource. And somebody's like, hey, there's this Middle Eastern guy who wants in. And we're like, eh, yeah. You know, he can go to the Middle Eastern church, Right. We don't need any of his kind in here. That's what's going on in Laodicea. Come on, let me in. So this isn't a verse about I'm lost and I need Jesus. If you're not a believer in Jesus, do you need him in your life? Absolutely, but that's not what this verse is. This is a verse that says, is Christ really in me? Not am I saved because these people are believers in Jesus. Am I letting him lead me? Am I letting him be Lord of my life? Or am I keeping him 
at arm's distance. And, and you can imagine when the preacher finished reading that story, that, that letter, we don't have a record of what it was like that Sunday, but I can imagine there was an awkward silence. There was a lot of throat, throat clearing. There may have been some people who got up and walked out. Maybe some guy said, preacher, is he saying that we make Jesus want to puke? Is that what he's saying? Yeah, that's, that's what he's saying. Can you imagine hearing that about you, about your church? From Jesus, not from just some ordinary person who's having a bad day, from the Lord of heaven and earth who knows all things, who loves you enough to die for you. What on earth had this church done to make Jesus physically ill? Now, when you read this story and then you read a little bit about Laodicea, you see Jesus is very, very specific about their city. He, he hits them at the points where they think they've got it made. Laodicea, you see, was a, a, a city that was wealthy for that time. There was a lot of wealth there. And so you can imagine in a time where most Christians had nothing, there were probably members of that church who were well-to-do. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. You think you've got it made, but, but you're, you're impoverished. You're broke. You're bankrupt before me. You need to buy from me the gold that doesn't wear out, that doesn't fluctuate with the stock market, that can't be stolen, that doesn't rust. That city was, was known also for its garment industry. People would make these woolen uh, sweaters and shirts and, and, and clothing. And so I'm sure there were people in that church that were very well dressed. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand. You walk around in your fine clothes, but you're actually stark naked. Everyone can see everything about you. And you're ridiculous. You're, you're, you're wounded before me. You're, 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 you're embarrassing the cause of Christ. Come to me and be clothed in my righteousness because your righteousness doesn't cover you. They were also known for an eye ointment they made, a salve that you could place in your eyes if you were, if you were having trouble with certain eye irritations and it would heal you. And he says, you know, you're actually blind. You think you see the world accurately because you look at yourself and you see righteousness and you look at the world and you see sin, but you don't see yourself at all. I will give you eyes to see so that you can know what's going on, what's really happening in your life and what I desire for your life. See, the main theme of both of these passages, both of these verses, if you want to sum it up in one sentence, it's you and I don't know the truth about ourselves until Christ reveals it. We may think we do. We may think we've got ourselves all figured out. We may be very confident. On the one hand, like people in, in exile in Judah, we may think, well, God's abandoned me. You don't know. On the other hand, we may be like the people of Laodicea and say, you know, we've got it good here. We're doing a good job. We're living right. And Jesus says, not, not so fast. You don't see until I show you the truth. And it makes you ask the question, what would God say to us? You know, I'd love to be able to stand here and say, I have a letter from Jesus to First Baptist Conroe. Dear First Baptist Conroe, your pastor is awesome but I don't have that letter. And that's not the way the letter would read if I had it. But I do know this. The Holy Spirit of God is here right now. And I know that not because I'm more spiritual than you are, because uh, I can see him visibly. I know it because when God's people gather in his name, he is present. And so I want to ask you to do something. We're not done with the sermon just yet. We've got a, a couple minutes left. But before we proceed, I want to do something you don't usually see. And that is, take a moment for you to ask God to say, speak to me. 
For you to just say, Lord, I admit that there's things about myself that I probably don't see. There are flaws that I probably gloss over or ignore. There are things that need to change in me that I'm not aware of, so make it known to me. In other words, I'm gonna give you 30 seconds of silence to literally pray, Lord, show me the truth about myself today. Would you do that? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? I'll give you 30 seconds to say, Lord, show me the truth about me in whatever way you wanna say it, starting now. Lord Jesus, please open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears. Let us hear what you're saying to each one of us individually and to us collectively as a church. We need you, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what I want to do with the few minutes I have left, I want to think about the things we've seen in these two other groups of God's people. The three tendencies we see in them, tendencies that may be in us. I want you to ask the question, now that you've prayed to the Lord, now that you've said, Lord, show me what's really true about me, I want you to ask the Lord, is this true of me? Number one, am I, am I guilty of isolation? Isolation, that's, that's that group that said, okay, we're here in this godless city. Let's build a big wall around ourselves. Let's protect what we have. Those people out there are evil. They're wicked. We need to stay away from them. We need to bond together so we can protect the things that are important to us. And there's so many churches, so many Christians who fall into that category, who want to live their lives behind a, a brick and stained glass wall and just see everybody outside as the barbarians at the gate. When you think about lost people, when you think about non-Christians, if your first thought is they're my enemy and not my mission field, this is what I'm talking about. When I was in seminary, one of my professors said something that stuck with me. He said, if your church this Sunday closed its doors for the very last time, and on the same day, all the garbage collectors in the city walked off the job and went on strike, which one would affect your community more? Would your community immediately say, no, 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 First Baptist has to keep going because it's blessing so many people. It's sending so many mentors into the schools. It's, it's sending out people to have transforming relationships with their neighbors and their friends and their, and their coworkers. And, and there's, there's so many things, you know, they're helping the homeless and they're doing all these great things. And so they can't stop. Or are they going to say, who's going to pick up this garbage? Which one? Are we guilty of isolation? Are you guilty of that mindset? Number two, Am I guilty, Lord, of assimilation? That's just a fancy word for a desire to fit in. Do I fit in with those who don't believe? It, it, it basically comes down to saying, yeah, I want salvation. Yes, I believe in Jesus and I want him to save my soul, but I'm not willing to pay the price of living a holy life in a culture that doesn't value that kind of life. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be weird. I want one foot, I want a, a foot solidly in this world so I can, I can experience all the things that I see my non-Christian neighbors and my less religious friends experiencing. I don't want to miss out on any of that fun. I mean, I want just enough Jesus to keep my soul out of hell, but not enough to make me strange. Somebody else put it this way. 
If Christianity suddenly became illegal in this country, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict? Or would a good defense attorney be able to get you off, acquit you? Because they could bring up somebody who, you know, character witnesses who would say, yeah, yeah, I know he's, he goes to my church. I, I know she's in church most Sundays, but I, you can tell when she's away from there, that's not what's important to her. Yeah, he's part of my youth group, but I can tell it's just because there's cute girls in the group. I mean, that's why he's there. Or it's just because her mom makes her come. I, I know he says he's a Christian, but listen, I work for him. The way he treats his employees, the way he manages his books, there's nothing Christ-like about that. Yeah, he's a Christian for sure. I, I, my kids are on the same baseball team as his kids. Trust me, I've seen the way he interacts with his wife and his kids. He's not a Christian. We've had harsh words. I've said ugly things to him. And I know the Bible says you're supposed to love your enemies. I don't see any love in that. He acts the same way when his buttons are pushed as anybody else. Are you assimilating? Are you standing out? Third question, are you guilty of stagnation? Stagnation means have you stopped being a flowing river flowing towards the truth, constantly changing, constantly growing, and you've become just a stagnant pool? The film on the top of it, just sitting, never moving, never growing. Oh, there was a time when you grew. There was a time when you could say, oh yeah, I've, I've been born again. Boy, I was such a sinner. And then God came into my life and Jesus saved me and I was transformed. For, but when's the last time growth happened? Have you become like those people in Laodicea, lukewarm before the Lord, infected with mediocrity, content with where you are? Because God never stops moving. Trust me, Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he loves you way too much to let you stay that way. You can bank on that. And if you want to know whether you're guilty of stagnation, ask yourself the honest question, when's the last time that I learned something new about Jesus that was so profound that it changed the way that I worship? When's the last time that I literally wept before God because of my sin? When I was filled with mourning and a desire to be more like him, when's the last time that I changed so profoundly that people who know me came up and said, what's happened to you? I like it, but I don't know where this is coming from because that sort of thing should happen in our lives all the time. We should be coming to him on a regular basis saying, Lord, I, I need you. This is something that I can give the people who raised me, the, the people I went to church with as a, as a child, so much credit because they taught me about Jesus. They're, they're the reason I got saved. They discipled me. They ordained me into the ministry. One thing they didn't teach me, and it's not their fault. This is just not something that was preached in evangelical Christianity back then, is that the gospel isn't just for your initial salvation. You don't just need the gospel so you can come to Jesus and be saved. You need it every single day. The gospel is, I come to Jesus on a regular basis and I say, Lord, there's still a lot of anger in me. There's still a lot of fear. There's bitterness. There's love of the things of this world. There's spiritual mediocrity and contentment and that laziness. And Lord, I need for you to clothe me in your righteousness. I need for you to give me the wealth that doesn't wear out. 
I need for you to give me eyes to see myself through your eyes, eyes to see my neighbors as they really are and to love them the way that you do. I need to start every single day in the gospel of saying, I need your grace to change me. Because when you stop doing that, that's when your life grows stagnant. See, here's the good news. One of the things I love about this country is we're a nation of immigrants. My own heritage is I'm about two-thirds English and, and a third German. That, word, that name Berger didn't come from nowhere, right? Uh, and my ancestors brought their cultures with them. And so did yours. And they brought culture over from Italy and from uh, South America, from, from Mexico and Central America, from Asia, from all the nations of Europe, from every country on this earth came to this country. And, and it's one of the things that makes our country great. It's one of the things on another note that makes our language hard to learn because English is an amalgamation of all these different languages all crammed together very awkwardly. None of the rules apply. But on the other hand, man, it gives us some good food, doesn't it? One of the great things about living on the outskirts of, of Houston is within an hour, you can have virtually any kind of cuisine on earth. Of course, we seem to be partial to the cuisine of Mexico, right? So, so, so there's a lot of that in our neighborhood. But if you want Vietnamese noodle soup, if you want lamb kebabs, if you want whatever, you can get it because every immigrant who came here brought some of their culture with them and made it our culture. And Jesus is the ultimate immigrant. Because when he came into this world in the flesh, he was an immigrant from the New Jerusalem, from the kingdom of God. And everywhere he went, he brought that kingdom with him. And when he saw somebody who was blinded, he gave them sight. When he saw someone who couldn't walk, he got them up on their feet. When he saw someone who had died, Jesus was the worst thing in the world for funeral directors, right? He broke up every funeral he ever attended. He fed poor people. He, he stopped storms in the midst of the storm. What was he doing? He was saying, where I'm from, it's not like this. Where I'm from, blind people see. Where I'm from, poor people have plenty. Where I'm from, people walk and people live and there's no death and there's no hunger and there's no poverty and there's no storms. Don't you want to live with me? Don't you want to go to that city? And then in order to make it possible... He died on a cross to open that door so that any one of us could emigrate with him. And three days later, he rose again. And that power that raised him from the dead can transform your life today. That power that raised him from the dead is the power that he wants to place in us to transform others, to get involved in their lives, to change their lives. That is the answer. The isolation, assimilation, stagnation, it's transformation only through Jesus Christ. Some of you have never experienced that. Maybe you've been going to church. Maybe it's all about what I believe and what I do. No, you need to be changed from the inside out. And many of you in this room have experienced that, but somewhere along the way, you've missed it. Somewhere along the way, you've drifted. You're still saved. Jesus is not going to reject you but you're missing out on the, on the life you've been called to live, the abundant life Jesus died to give you. Come to him in humility and be transformed today.